First blush, you might wonder, Pastor, why in the world on Palm Sunday are we studying Psalm 24? Immediately when we think of Palm Sunday, we think of the triumphal entry and all of the events that transpired on that day. Uh, But on Sundays, when the priests were working in the temple, this is the, the very psalm that they would be reciting. According to ancient rabbinical sources, they would sing this song. They would quote this song. And as they were quoting this psalm, they're, they're working in the temple. They're doing the work of God. They're, they're carrying out the, the procedures related to sacrifices and all of the things associated with temple worship. On this particular Sunday, April the 2nd, A.D. 30, 1,933 days ago, on this Sunday, April the 2nd, A.D. 30, while they were reciting and singing and working in the temple, Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. It's one of the most spectacular and monumental events in the life of our Savior. For most of his adult ministry, that is, he was an adult and all of his ministry was when he was an adult, but during all of his ministry, his public ministry, he he tried to keep it quiet as to his messianic identity. Uh, He didn't want the the fires of messianism to, to start spreading too rapidly. He didn't want the Romans stepping in and putting an end to what he was doing. He realized that his own people had a misunderstanding of what kind of Messiah he would be. They were looking for a Davidic warrior. He came to be a savior. He came to save us from our sins, not to save Israel from the Romans. And so he would heal a person and he would say, don't say anything about this. He'd resuscitate a dead girl, then he would say to the mother and father, don't tell anybody about this. Over and over, he he had a cloak of messianic secrecy that he tried to keep within a very close circle his his true identity, except he threw off the cloak of messianic secrecy the day that he rode into Jerusalem. The day that he rode into Jerusalem, for those with eyes to see, they would be able to recognize that he was identifying himself with the long-awaited Messiah. He was fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And you can hear it in the admiration and the adulation of the crowds. Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of David. So as, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, the crowds are laying palm branches on his pathway. Others are taking off their cloaks and laying it out as a red carpet. And Jesus is making it known publicly to anyone with eyes to see that he was the fulfillment of the promises associated with the seed of David. There were people in Jerusalem, in fact, tens of thousands of people would gather in Jerusalem for the Passover. They they had no idea who Jesus was. They saw all of this celebratory activity happening around him. They didn't know who he was. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 11, some of them said, who is this? 
Who is this that all of this celebration seems to be centering around? And those who recognized who Jesus was said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. So as they are acknowledging that Jesus is the Messianic King, they are acknowledging that the one being celebrated is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, inside the temple courts, the priests are saying, who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty? Little did anyone understand at that particular time that what the priests were asking and answering, Jesus in a very real sense was the fulfillment of. There's a very close relationship between Palm Sunday and Psalm 24. And so I want us to to look at it, I want us to, to try and understand it a little bit better, to try and to try and get our minds wrapped around Psalm 24 and its messianic identification of Jesus and the message that comes from this psalm. So what what I've entitled our study this morning is the King of Glory. The King of Glory, or maybe even better, welcome the King of Glory into your heart. The psalm begins with a glorious confession, a magnificent confession of faith. Look with me in the first two verses. It's an acknowledgement that God is the God of creation, that God created all things. He says, the earth is the Lord's and all the, and all the, the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He is the creator God. He spoke all things into existence. What a grand and glorious way to begin this psalm, to contemplate the idea that God is our creator, and he is the creator of all things. Uh, But he doesn't end there. He wants us to think and to resonate on the fact that he not only created the heavens and the earth, He not only created the seas and the lakes, He he created you and He created me. This is exactly what the Apostle John says in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Look at John 1, 1 through 3 with me for just a moment, because here we see that Jesus is the one whom the psalmist David is writing about. He writes, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. The book of Genesis opens up with a description of God creating. The Gospel of John opens up with a new creation idea. Jesus is the one that spoke all things into existence. The means by which God the Father created all things was through the agency of His Son. I want you to think with me about another reference, another thought related to this. And it's found in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Paul articulates the same truth that John articulates in slightly different words. But a point that Paul makes that John doesn't make is this, and that is we find our true purpose in understanding Jesus as our Creator. He's not only created all things, but all things have been created for Him. That infuses all of life with meaning and significance. It doesn't matter what our vocation is, God has created us for Himself. That means whatever our vocation is, we can bring God glory through that vocation. So many times we think more like Roman Catholics than we do like biblical Christians. Roman Catholicism teaches that there's a grand distinction between the priest and the laity, between the clergy and the laity. And if that's true, then the clergy have an advantage over the laity. The clergy can bring glory to God in a way that the laity cannot. The clergy have an opportunity to give praise and honor to God by their vocation that the laity do not. But Paul would not want us to think that way. Particularly in this very thought, all things have been created through Him, and all things have been created for Him. That means no matter who we are or what we do, we find our true purpose and meaning in Jesus. It means if I'm, a, if I'm an electrician, I'm an electrician for Jesus. If I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm a stay-at-home mom for Jesus. If I'm a mom that works at home and then has to work outside the home, I'm a working mom for Jesus. No matter who I am or what I do, I can do it for Jesus, and Jesus receive glory from it. There's no artificial distinction between the spiritual and the secular. Everything is spiritual because we find our purpose for living in Him. So many times you meet people, and, and when you begin to, to dig below the surface, if they're honest, they would say, my life lacks purpose and meaning. Well, you only find your true purpose and meaning in life in Jesus Christ. So when the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who live in it, he means you and me. And he means by that we find our true reason and purpose for living in him. Abraham Kuyper was a theologian. He died in the early 20th century. Let me read you something that Abraham Kuyper wrote along this same idea. In the total expanse of the human life, there is not a single square inch of which Christ, who alone is sovereign, not, does not declare, that is mine. Every lake, every ocean, every mountain, every, every beautiful piece of scenery belongs to Him. He, he created it. He created it to, to project His glory and the power of His spoken word. But the same is true for you and me. We are His. We belong to Him. 
And the sooner we come to that realization, the sooner we can find our true purpose in life. We won't wander around with a sense of meaninglessness or purposelessness. Sometimes people, when they retire, they struggle. They, they, they've spent their entire life maybe in one or two professions. They spent a, a great part of their career in, in one place, doing one thing. And then all of a sudden they retire and they, and they begin to sense uh, an idleness about them. They, they sense something's missing. They had been getting up and going to work every day, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And now, and now what? Well, nothing's actually changed. We still belong to God, and we still have purpose and meaning because God has something for us to do besides watch Jeopardy. Now, I don't have anything wrong, anything against Jeopardy, but God has more in store for us than television. He has more in store for us than just sitting and lounging. That's a good part, I think, about retirement. There's plenty of time to sit and to lounge, but if that becomes our lives, if that becomes our existence, there ought to be within the child of God, the Spirit of God, stirring up a restlessness, a sense of purposelessness in their lives. And so Kuiper helps us understand that, that we've not been created for that sense of purposelessness. And so we see a grand confession, a beautiful confession in the first two verses, but I want you to notice in verses 3 through 6 a penetrating question. It's a haunting question, a disturbing question. It's a question that ought to, to echo through the chambers of our hearts. Who may ascend unto the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in His holy place? Jerusalem was on a hill. And so if you were going to the temple to worship God, you would go up a hill. Very highly elevated, Jerusalem is. And as you ascend that hill, heading to the temple of the Lord, the question has to be asked, who can stand in the presence of God? Who, who can enter into God's presence? It's a penetrating question. It echoes through our minds and he gives an answer. He gives two answers. But the answers are as disquieting as the question. Here's the first answer. One who has clean hands and a pure heart. To have clean hands means that I do good things, godly things, holy things. To say that I have a pure heart is to say I'm a person of integrity. My, my outward actions and my inner person are commensurate. That what you see is what you get. What I do is who I am, that I don't do one thing in public and another thing in private. So one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Then he goes on and he says, who has not lifted up his soul to deceive. The imagery here is, is going to a high place in the Old Testament, a high place is where they would build, build altars to idols. So to lift up your soul in deceit, is to worship an idol. It's to give yourself to an idol. So, to reject idolatry and, who, and has not sworn deceitfully. That is, doesn't speak deceitfully to one's neighbor. So, it's love God with all your heart. That's the first part. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
That's the second part. But the disturbing part of all of that is none of us do it the way that we ought to do it. Who among us is fit to go into the presence of God if that means my public persona and my private persona have to be commensurate? Who can say that there's nothing in their life that they don't long for at times, even in competition to God? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy presence? The answer is none of us. None of us are sufficient to enter the presence of God in our own selves or in our own righteousness. But notice what David says in verse 5. He will receive, circle the word receive, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The blessing and the righteousness go together. It's something that we receive. It's something that's given to us from God. We receive a blessing. That's 5A. That blessing is righteousness. That's 5B. It comes to us from God, who is the God of our salvation. So we don't enter into the presence of God based upon our own integrity. We don't enter into the presence of God based upon our own works. We don't enter into God's presence based upon what we do or don't do. We, we can't do enough. We're, we're insufficient. We're inadequate. We fall short. But we have a blessing from God. We have righteousness from God. We have salvation and it all comes from God. You see, what we need is right standing. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible said. And yet God has offered a way for us to be made right with Himself through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's only through Christ that we can stand in God's presence. But when we stand in God's presence, we have nothing to fear when we stand in Christ because we are clothed in a righteousness that's not our own. For he who knew no sin became sin that we through his righteousness, we might gain his righteousness. We might be clothed in his righteousness. We might have his righteousness imputed to us. Who can stand in the, in the presence of God? If you know Jesus Christ, you can. And so can I. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what He has done. So when the devil whispers in our ear, you, you don't have what it takes to be in God's presence. You don't have what it takes to sing God's praises. You don't have what it takes to be God's servant. We have, an, we have a response. We have salvation from God. We have righteousness from God. We have blessing from God. And as a result of that, he says in verse 6, this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, Selah. So the response from us to that magnificent news that God has given us salvation is that we seek him. To seek him means to seek his face, not his hand. I don't know about you, I, I find myself, if I'm not careful, seeking God's hand more than I do His face. To seek His face is to seek Him for who He is. To seek His hand is to seek Him for what He can do for us. 
Now, one doesn't, isn't, should be, shouldn't exclude the other. But the primary motivation for seeking God is to seek Him for who He is, regardless of what He does for us. But the blessing is He does great things for us because of His love toward us. And so, you'll notice the little word, Selah. It's not a word, as far as I understand it, that you actually read as a part of the text. It's a, it communicates the idea of a pause. So, when you get to the end of verse 6, you pause. Think about it just a moment. Jesus Christ is our creator. That's verses 1 and 2. When God spoke into existence all things, He did it through the mediatory work of His Son. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things came into being through Him. So, we pause and we think about that. He's my creator. He created me. I find purpose and meaning by living out the life that He's created me to live. And secondly, he's invited me into his presence, but I don't have what it takes to enter into his presence. He gives it to me as a gift. And so I recognize that I don't earn his love. I live in response to his love. And that response causes me to want to seek his face, not his hand. But beginning in verse, in verse 7, uh, we come to... A third thought, it's going to be an exchange between those outside the city walls and those inside the city walls. We're going to have a, we're going to have a discussion that goes on between those outside the city and those inside the city. We're going to have a give and a take, a back and forth as people begin to speak by asking questions and then having the answer to those questions. It pictures, it pictures a king approaching a walled city, a barricaded city. And as the king approaches, his entourage calls out, Lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So as the entourage approaches, whether it's the Ark of the Covenant that's being brought to Jerusalem in David's time, whether it's the, the king approaching Jerusalem, those who are a part of the entourage say to those who are controlling the gates that would open up to allow them entry into the city, say, lift up your heads, you gates, be lifted up that the king of glory may come in. And then from inside the walled city maybe at a, at a tower, looking down on those who are asking permission to come in, the question is asked, who is the King of glory? The response, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, is the reply from those outside the gates. Then the whole thing happens again, almost, almost in exactly the same words. Lift up your heads, you gates, and lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. 
So outside, they're giving this command. Let the King of glory in. And then from inside, they ask the question, who is this King of glory? And then from outside, they respond, the Lord Almighty, or the Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. Selah. Pause. Think. Reflect. Contemplate. Now remember, as the priest are reciting this in the temple, in the streets, the crowds are saying, who is this? Who is this man riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Who is this man that's got a red carpet laid out, made of palm branches and cloaks? Who is this man that they're singing from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Well, they're answering the question inside the temple. He's the king of glory. He's the Lord strong and mighty. He's the Lord of the armies. He's the king of glory. Little did the priests know how true their words were on that day. Sunday was Psalm 24 day in the temple. Sunday was the day that they would recite and sing this particular psalm as they worked in the temple. Sunday was the day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Sunday was the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. Let me give you some, some final reflections on, on Palm Sunday. Some final thoughts. Because all four Gospels describe Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The Gospels don't, all the Gospels together, all four Gospels don't normally describe a single event. There's very few events in the life of Jesus that's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but this is one of them. This is one of those events that's found in all four Gospels. So it was a, a monumental moment. But the interesting thing is Luke tells us something that Matthew, Mark, and John do not. Just as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, Jesus left Jerusalem into the clouds of heaven. Just as Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus entered into heaven. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, the apostles, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus entered into heaven. Listen to what he did when he entered into heaven. From Ephesians chapter 1. Which God brought about in Christ when God raised Christ from the dead. And seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus entered into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All things were placed under his feet. The one that has saved us reigns over us. And that should inspire us. It should inspire us to believe that the one to whom we pray has the capacity, the ability, the authority to answer all of our prayers for his glory and our good. The one to whom we beseech, the one to whom we cry, the one to whom we we agonize over the spiritual lives of people that we care about is able and capable to answer our prayers. He's seated at God's right hand. If knowing He's our Creator inspires us with purpose, knowing that He is at God's right hand encourages us to pray. Because we pray to one who is not feeble, whose authority is inconsequential. He has all authority to accomplish all of His holy will, so we pray to one who can hear our prayers. So Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and 40 days after His resurrection, He entered into heaven, but one day He's going to enter into the skies. One day He's going to return from heaven. Paul put it this way, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. The Lord who came from heaven has returned to heaven, and one day will come from heaven. This is the God that asks us to open our hearts. This is the God that stands at the gate of our hearts. And He doesn't just request that we open our hearts, but He demands it. Listen to what Philip Ryken says. Philip Ryken was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a very, very, very prominent Presbyterian church, president now of Wheaton College. He put it this way, if you are not a Christian, Jesus now stands outside the gates. He is not just hoping, or he is not, he is not simply hoping to gain entrance. He's demanding it. He is doing it at this very moment. Saying, open your heart to receive my grace. If you're not, if you are here and you don't know Jesus, Jesus is demanding that you open your heart to him. But it's not the demand of of a tyrant or a dictator. It's the demand of a loving, kind, caring Savior. He's saying, open up your heart to me. 
inside. Who, who is seeking entrance? The Lord of glory is seeking entrance. God Almighty is seeking entrance. How does Jesus enter our lives? For as many as received him, receives a good word, we've, we've seen it, we, we hear it. For as many as received him, that's a good word, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. To receive him is to believe in him. To believe in him is to receive him. So you receive him by believing in him. You put your faith and trust in him. You believe that what he says about our spiritual condition apart from him is true. Through the Apostle Paul, he tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Through the Apostle Paul, Jesus says to us, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's found not only in the Apostle Paul, but Paul's quoting the Psalms when he says that. None righteous, all in need. And yet he not only exposes our need, he provides us the answer to our need, which is a righteousness from God. Our need is we're unrighteous. Our need is we are not capable in light of who we are outside of Christ to enter into his presence. But he satisfies himself by bearing, Jesus does, God's wrath and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So what do we do? We put our faith and trust in Him. We believe that Jesus died in our place. We believe that Jesus bore in His body the punishment for our sin. We receive Him. We ask Him to save us. We put our faith in Him and we turn our lives over to Him. That's what repentance is. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is giving Him our life to quit working, living for ourselves, working for ourselves, doing for ourselves. Repentance is ceasing to live for myself and turning my life over to God. So he says, repent and believe the gospel. So the question that I ask you this morning is, have you done that? And if so, when did you do that? Now you know I'm not talking about a day and an hour But I am talking that there is evidence in your life that you've been born again by the Spirit of God and that that, that transformation took place at a particular point. You don't just become a Christian kind of as you would morph into it. You become a Christian instantaneously. You don't know the day or the hour, but you know that you repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Who is this Lord of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, Jesus, Savior and King? What better day, what better day to open the door to the King of glory than on Palm Sunday? What better day to receive the blessing and the salvation that David writes about? In this book? What, what better day to be clothed in a righteousness that's not your own? Because without that righteousness, you can't go into God's presence. Without that righteousness, you're not welcome in God's presence. But He will give you the very thing that you need. 
It may be today that you'd like to speak to someone, maybe one of the, the good folks at our connection tables. Maybe a, a BFG teacher or director. Send a message to us. I, I, I'll, I'll have, I've, got a, I've got a beautiful driver. She'll, she'll drive me to your house and, and we'll set up a time to be there. There's nothing I like better than riding around with her and so we'll be glad to come to your home. You may have a staff person you've got a relationship with. Send them a message. Say, listen, I, I, I was really, I'm really concerned that, that I've not received the righteousness that comes from a righteous Savior because I've never believed in His name. We love the honor to sit with you in your living room and share with you the beauty of Jesus and the salvation that He secured. I'm going to ask if you'll stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. And our worship pastor is going to lead us in a final song. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we know the answer to these questions that were asked. Who is the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty? Uh, we know who He is, and we know what He's done. And in this most important of weeks, as we move toward the commemoration of His death on Good Friday and His resurrection on Resurrection Sunday, do a deep, fresh, powerful work in us individually and in us congregationally that we would love you more completely, obey you more fully, and share, you, and share your gospel more intentionally. In Jesus' name, amen.